0: In today's gospel lesson, Jesus tells us yet another parable about the kingdom of God. This time, God's reign is depicted as a vineyard, painstakingly prepared by a landowner and then leased to some less-than-honorable tenants. Sometimes Jesus tells us parables that it's hard to understand their meaning, but this isn't one of those parables. Back in Jesus' day, tenant farming was pretty common. Landowners would lease their property to some resident farmers and then send someone to collect their share of the produce at harvest time. Occasionally, a dispute would arise over just how much produce the landowner was due, but the law was pretty clear how to handle situations like that. And in situations like the one that Jesus describes in his parable, there was absolutely no doubt how things would turn out. When it was time for the harvest, Jesus invites us to imagine, the landowner sent his slaves to collect what was due. But the tenants refused to pay up. In a brazen, shocking sign of rebellion, they beat, killed, and stoned the landowner's slaves. So the landowner tried again, sending more slaves, perhaps because he was unaware why the first group didn't succeed in their mission. But the second group feared no better than the first, and they too were beaten, killed, and stoned. Something else had to be done, so the landowner sent his son, the heir, his legal agent, who, unlike any of the slaves, would be in a position to contact the authorities and declare his father's arrangement with the tenants in abeyance. The son would have the authority to boot the tenants off the land, have them arrested, make sure that they were punished, before leasing the land out to someone else. But the tenants had another idea. When they saw the landowner's son, they said to themselves, Look, it's the heir. If we kill him, we'll be able to keep the vineyard for ourselves. It doesn't take a legal scholar to know what happens next. In fact, Jesus uses a common rabbinical technique where he poses the question upon his audience and allows them to hang themselves on their own words. What will the landowner do when he comes to that town? He asks and they respond, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest time. Jesus' audience knows exactly what this parable means. They can even tell that Jesus is telling it about them. They know that God will not allow the kingdom to be hijacked by those who would keep it for themselves. It's not hard to figure that part out. But what is hard is figuring out what this parable means for us. And I think to understand that, we need to try to hear Jesus' words, not as we normally would as one of his disciples, but instead as if we are among the religious leaders, the targets of Jesus' unveiled criticism. And given how important we think we are, I don't think that'll be all that hard to do in the end. This whole situation between Jesus and the leaders started when the chief priests and the Pharisees came to Jesus to ask where he got the authority to challenge their leadership. But I want to go back just a little further than that and try to figure out why they were upset in the first place. You might remember when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at the beginning of Matthew 21 that he went straight for the temple. And as soon as he arrived in the temple, he did what? He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Effectively, Jesus forced the religious apparatus at the center of Judaism to grind to a screeching halt. And then, Matthew tells us, because worship had stopped... The blind and the lame were able to come into the temple and find Jesus and ask him to heal them, which he did. The buzz about this controversial figure quickly grew to a fevered pitch. Even the children in the temple, Matthew recalls, spontaneously cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Giving to Jesus a label that carried clear messianic expectations. And when the leaders heard those children's cries, they became indignant. This was too much. Not only had Jesus asserted himself right in the middle of the religious life of their people, but he had done so in ways that made the people wonder whether he might be the Lord's anointed. The Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by God to set God's people free from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. Now sure, Jesus was popular among the crowds, but what had he done to earn the right to disrupt the careful balance of power between the Jewish and Roman authorities? What gave this carpenter's son from Nazareth the right to displace those recognized religious leaders in favor of a new kingdom of God, and even more than that, to set himself upon the throne of that kingdom? I think 2,000 years later, we Christians tend to discount the questions and objections of the religious leaders because we know how the story is going to end. We know in the end that Jesus will be vindicated by the resurrection, But what if we allowed ourselves to be in the place of those leaders for a moment or two? What if we didn't know exactly how the story would end? Wouldn't we ask Jesus the same thing? Wouldn't we insist on some sort of proof of authority before we allowed a renegade stranger to throw away everything we know to be good and right about our church? Think about it this way. Whose criticism of our parish are you willing to take to heart? What sort of outsider with no connection or investment in the history, tradition, and leadership of this church would we invite to dress us down and tell us everything we're doing wrong? Would we allow a stranger to walk down the aisle on a Sunday morning and bring our worship to a screeching halt? Now, in our tradition, we already know where to look for people with that kind of authority. That's why we have clergy. <laughs> we, we are ordained. We're set apart because we're supposed to be in the business of telling congregations what God is saying to us. We know we're supposed to listen to them. Vestries, too, have that sort of authority. Elected by the members of a parish, they are the ones responsible for setting a budget and taking care of the buildings, which means, in effect, we listen to them every time we put something in the offering plate. Bishops actually have surprisingly little authority when it comes to the operation of a parish. But when the woman or the man with the pointy hat walks through the door, we tend to listen to what they have to say, even when they say something controversial. Other people in our parish have considerable authority that comes from unofficial sources. Volunteers like Albert Gray, without whom the church could not operate, they are understood by many to be the authority on countless details. Parishioners who have worshipped here for 50 years or more, aren't they the ones we ask to help us understand our history? And those who show up and help out every time help is needed, like the members of St. Spatula's Guild, aren't they the authorities we look to when we need to know how it is we're supposed to take care of each other and this place that we love? If any of those authorities stood up and called us out, I bet we'd listen. But what about someone we don't know? What about someone we don't recognize? What about someone who hasn't taken the time to get to know us, to be among us, to to learn how it is that we do things in this place? Would we listen to them? When the religious leaders asked Jesus to explain where his authority comes from, he didn't waste any time or breath in justifying his prophetic actions or tracing back his messianic lineage. Instead, he told them some stories. Stories about what it means to do the will of God and what happens when we forget that God is the one we are called to serve. The kingdom of God is like a landowner who planted a vineyard and then leased it out to some tenants before going away to another country. In the parable we hear this morning, Jesus teaches us that the authority of every religious institution and every religious leader is measured only by the extent to which they bear fruit for God. In a church as old and as beautiful as ours, in a denomination as tradition-rich and pretentious as ours, We've got to be careful that we don't confuse the fruit that we're storing up in our own pantry for the fruit we are called to give back to God. We have been tenants in this particular vineyard for a long, long time, so long that it's easy to forget that the vineyard doesn't belong to us. We are merely leasing it from God. If we want to know Whether we are being faithful tenants, we shouldn't listen to the religious elites in our midst, but to those whom Jesus came to serve. For it is the poor and the oppressed, the incarcerated and the marginalized, who will tell us whether we are sharing our produce with God or trying to keep it all for ourselves. If a guest at community meals stood up to tell us that we have all of our priorities backward, would we listen to them? If one of the people who sleeps every night beside our playground or on the porch on the side of the narthex, if they walked in here, stopped our Sunday morning worship in order to tell us that what we do in this place isn't actually getting us any closer to the reign of God Would we listen to them? If Jesus came to the door and asked us by what authority we claim to be the body of Christ, Christ's hands and feet in the world, what would we say? I think our parish does a lot of good in this community, and I am proud to be the rector of St. Paul's. To the people of Fayetteville, I think we represent hope and love and welcome for all people. I think we are known as a church that not only talks about helping people, but we're a place where that talk becomes action. Over the years, we've produced a lot of good, a lot of fruit for the kingdom of God, but we can't stop now. Going forward, we must remember that the only measure of our success is whether we are bearing fruit for God, and we must allow those who operate outside the power structures of this church or this community, we must allow them to be the ones who tell us when we get it wrong.